Welcome home. My name is Jewish Jasmine T, and this is Help Me Name This Podcast. So, um, my apologies for not having a podcast this Sunday. I know they're supposed to be Wednesdays and Sundays, but this Sunday I had no Wi-Fi. Um, and honestly, getting this episode out for Wednesday is a little bit hard, and we're going to talk about that today. So this is going to be a whole episode dedicated to explaining in detail um, what my mental health condition entails, because there is a lot of false information about Tourette's and a lot of very large misconceptions, and it makes it hard to understand why Tourette's would make it difficult to function. Um, So yeah, that's what we're doing. So let's start with uh, the beginning. Uh, The first symptoms of Tourette's usually occur in the head and neck area, uh, and they progress to include the muscles of the trunk and extremities. So, you know, that's midsection and arms and legs and whatnot, but it starts in the head and neck, typically. Motor tics generally precede the development of vocal tics, and simple tics often precede complex tics. So the first tick I ever had was a little neck twitch, and to this day, it is my most current, no, sorry, my most, like, I do it the most times a day. It's the tick that I have the most, uh, and it was my first one, and it's this little neck movement, and of course, more little neck movements have been added over the years, but that was my first one. Um, and what it's saying about vocal tics. So, first of all, I want to explain a huge misconception about Tourette's, and that is because of the media depicting Tourette's as yelling swear words all the time. There are cases where you yell swear words, and those are called verbal tics. And verbal tics and vocal tics are two different things. So you don't have to have verbal tics for a Tourette's diagnosis, but you do need to have vocal tics. So I don't have any uh, verbal tics regularly. It's happened a couple times from environmental triggers, and that can happen to people who don't regularly have verbal tics. Um, In really crowded restaurants, when I'm already under a lot of stress, I've had verbal tics. It's only happened a handful of times, but for the most part, I don't have any verbal tics. Um, Vocal tics are noises. They're not words. So my vocal tics are like a clicking. I do a whistle, like a that kind of thing. Um, And yeah, that's what a vocal tic is. And you get vocal tics... um, after your first motor tics. Most patients experience peak tic uh, severity between the mid-teen years with improvement of the majority of patients in late teen years or early adulthood. And that is the regular. Um, But my Tourette syndrome was a bit more complicated than that uh, because I wasn't diagnosed until I was 18. And because of that, um, I did a lot of things that people with Tourette's aren't supposed to do, 
because I didn't know I had it. Uh, and because of that, my tick severity hasn't even peaked yet. Um, it's still getting worse at this point. So that's something that's a little different about mine. Um, although the cause of Tourette's syndrome is unknown, current research points to abnormalities in certain brain regions. Uh, the basal ganglia, I believe it's pronounced, the frontal lobes, and the cortex. The circuits that interconnect these regions and the neurotransmitters, so dopamine, serotonin, um, they're responsible for communication among nerve cells. So... Uh, Many individuals with Tourette's syndrome experience additional neurobehavioral problems, um, and they cause more impairment than the tics. So there's this, there's this misconception that people with tics are just people that yell fuck in public sometimes. But what Tourette's syndrome is, the circuits that interconnect regions of your brain and neurotransmitters don't work. Your dopamine and serotonin don't communicate properly among your nerve cells, and everybody with Tourette's has different problems with these nerve cells and with these lines of communication. There's no two cases of Tourette's that are the same. And because there's this, because there's this wiring problem, there's a lot of other problems that come with Tourette's, and those are called comorbid disorders. And everybody with Tourette's has different comorbid disorders, and they're really, really hard to diagnose, uh, so much so that they don't usually. They just go uh, Tourette's syndrome with additional comorbid mental illness. And that makes it really hard to do things like properly medicate people with Tourette's and uh, find coping mechanisms because we don't have a diagnosis that's proper. Tourette's syndrome's a really hard thing to treat because of the medical community's unwillingness to research it or to even diagnose it because that's how hard it is to diagnose the comorbid disorders of Tourette's. Um... Some of the comorbid disorders that are most common are ADHD, uh, OCD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, um, anxiety, and clinical depression. Basically, anything that has to do with uh, neurotransmitters, communication among nerve cells, dopamine, serotonin, and on top of that, anything that the brain controls within the base the basal ganglia the frontal lobes and the cortex so that's everything that's every mental illness can be a comorbid disorder of Tourette's and um some people are accidentally reverse diagnosed because their symptoms of their comorbid disorder are worse than their tics so they'll diagnose somebody with borderline personality disorder and say and you have tics from the borderline personality disorder but really it's the other way around and that leads to medication that isn't right also so this is why Tourette's is so hard to not only diagnose but treat I would definitely say that it's up there with paranoid schizophrenia as to how hard it is to treat for completely different reasons um 
but on the subject, there's another thing that can be a comorbid disorder with Tourette's. So me personally, so I talked about my first tics, you know, being the neck twitches and whatnot that I still have. Um, but it didn't seem like anything, you know, I was a gymnast my whole life. So it just was, you know, she's a seven-year-old that's working out more than most teenagers. Obviously, she's going to have, you know, muscle growth that's uncomfortable and that's perfectly normal and healthy. And yeah, and I loved gymnastics. So there was no reason for a little neck, what looked like neck pain to stop me. Um, and it it's really unnoticeable. People don't, especially back then when it wasn't as bad as it is now, um, don't notice it. And um, whenever I had these neck tics, people would ask me if I was okay if they did notice it and if I was hurt or something, you know, and it got annoying. So I did, I started doing when I was like seven or eight, the number one thing you're not supposed to do with Tourette's, which is suppress your tics. This leads to a lot of problems and there isn't enough research into it to prove it. But I, I'm pretty sure that if I was a case study for Tourette's, it would absolutely end in the conclusion that suppressing your tics creates large long-term effects. So Tourette's is really hard to diagnose, especially in children who don't have verbal tics. I did not have verbal tics. So yeah, I was seven or eight. I started suppressing my tics and I thought everybody was. I thought everybody was, you know, my next tick was this blinking thing, this really hard, squinty double blink. And um, I had a harder time suppressing that one, but I thought everybody was, you know, always having these, I thought this was normal. I thought everybody was trying not to blink really hard all the time. You know, I was a kid. I didn't understand this wasn't normal. And it's pretty much impossible for anybody to notice it's happening to me because it's all in my head. And on top of that, I'm suppressing all of them. So my parents brought me to my pediatrician about the blinking. And he said, you know, she's probably allergic to pollen. We live on an island with a lot of pollen. Um, so it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Wait till winter. But winter came. And by then, I had gotten better at suppressing that tick. So now I was suppressing a handful of ticks because there were a couple small ones between the neck and the um, blinking. The most harmful of those being the nail biting. Um, it's hard to tell whether it's a tick or a symptom of my masking my ticks. I'm pretty sure it's a symptom of masking my ticks. Basically, masking my ticks creates such a buildup of anxiety in my body to a degree where it has to come out somewhere and I'm not I'm not letting it come out in ticks enough because there there's ticks that you can't mask you know even if I'm trying to it's still gonna happen um masking basically just prolongs it so I'll try and hold it for as long as possible to school day and get home and have an anxiety attack and all the ticks come out in that so the nail biting and the nail bed up rooting, I would bite my nails and pull the skin on my fingers till I bled, like a lot. And I still do to this day. As we are talking, I have one thumb 
that is currently bleeding. Um, so it still happens and I don't mask anymore. So this is one of the symptoms that I can't get to go away from masking my whole life. So if you, sorry, let's take a sip of iced coffee. And I do want to take a second to say that I'm like, fine. <laughs> I know everything sounds like bad or whatever, but I'm very used to all of these things. And I have coping mechanisms for all of these things that I've managed to find on my own for the most part. So I am fine. This is definitely not a pity party. I just want to explain why Tourette's is, is not just tics because it's not well known. So unfortunately, there's no medication that's helpful to people with Tourette's. Um, as far as ticks go, any medication completely eliminating symptoms is not a thing. In addition, all medica medications have side effects, and many um, side effects can be managed by initiating treatment slowly and reducing the dose when side effects occur. And this can be hard for people with Tourette's because all of these medication changes affect their ticks, and that's really hard. The most common side effects. Um, are weight gain and cognitive dulling. And the thing about cognitive dulling and people with Tourette's is, again, it's accidental masking of your tics. So you have a medication dulling you and masking your tics on the outside. But on the inside, your brain is still wired wrong in the exact same way. So when they take you off of the cognitive dulling medication, now you're having a bunch of anxiety attacks and panic attacks because they've been building up in your brain for so long. Genetic studies also suggest that some forms of ADHD and OCD are genetically related to Tourette syndrome, which we talked about a bit. Um, and the other thing is that when I say, you know, forms of ADHD and OCD, the reason I say forms and not full diagnosis is because more times than not, people with Tourette's syndrome have all of these different symptoms from all of these different mental illnesses and not the full list for a diagnosis. So, for instance, um, the obsessive compulsive tendency that I got comorbidly um, is cleaning my kitchen. My kitchen has to be clean. It is ridiculous. But then if you walk into my bedroom, the laundry's undone. And basically, the brain is wired in a way that it picks and chooses what to freak out over. I don't know how to explain it. Something about my kitchen not being clean triggers me. And it doesn't happen in any other room of the house. I don't know how to explain that. But it just does. So we'll move on. Uh, Trent syndrome does not impair intelligence. Although, symptom, although tick symptoms tend to decrease with age, it is possible that neurobehavioral disorders such as uh, ADHD, OCD, depression, generalized anxiety, panic attacks, mood swings can persist through... Uh, adult life. In some cases, ticks can cause physical pain such as headaches, muscle strain, or soreness. So 
first I'll cover panic attacks. Um, the way that I actually ended up getting diagnosed was through panic attacks. So when I was 18, um, I was living in Vancouver and I called my best friend at the time because I was crying, but I wasn't sad about anything. <laughs> and when I stopped crying, I like got so nauseous I would throw up. So I was just like making myself keep crying so that I wouldn't have to feel nauseous, which is so ridiculous. That is an insane panic attack that I've I've remember obviously I remember very detailed because it was crazy. And this was my first panic attack, like first hospitalization from a panic attack. There's different degrees of panic attacks, but because of how many hospitalized ones I've had, um I don't count a lot of my panic attacks as panic attacks because I didn't have to go to the hospital for it, so it doesn't compare. But this one, I absolutely did. Um, I got into the hospital. They were like, why are you crying? I was like, I don't know. I don't want to be crying, but when I stop, I almost throw up. That's super weird, they said. Um, and so they brought me in, you know, bedded me, whatnot. My heart rate was over 150, which is not normal. Uh, my blood pressure, I don't remember if it was too high or too low, but it was fucked also. And then they, <laughs> I was hyperventilating to such a degree that I couldn't move my extremities. I couldn't move my arms or legs. Um, it was fucking crazy. And they weren't quite sure what to do. Then they noticed I was dehydrated like somebody walking through the Sahara Desert. Like, I was dehydrated to a degree where I should be begging everybody around me for water. But they would ask me if I was thirsty and I would say no. And then they had someone from psych come down. Because in Vancouver, they actually have a psych department, unlike the hospital in where I live now. Um, so they had somebody in psych come down and ask me, you know, a bunch of questions about water, first of all. You know, can you remember any times in your life where you've ever been thirsty? You know, questions like that. Um, when I say water, what do you think? You know, psych stuff. Um, and she came to the conclusion that whatever mental illness I had, because I hadn't been diagnosed with anything they asked me if I even had anxiety about being in a new school, and I said no. Like, I was completely, I absolutely thought I had no problems with mental illness. I thought it was insane that they were even suggesting it. That's how good I was at masking. Um, and I didn't even know I was masking. So she came to the conclusion that whatever mental illness I had was uh, affecting my ability to feel thirst, Whatever part of my brain um, my Tourette syndrome affects is the same part of my brain that is supposed to feel thirst. So it's a super rare symptom, but it's the one that got me into the hospital and got me diagnosed. So I can't feel thirst, so that sucks. Um, I've been to the hospital six times for insane dehydration. And now I have, now that I live with my partner, I have somebody to help me remember to drink water. So that's good. But yeah, that's a weird symptom I have from that. And that's what put me on the path to getting diagnosed. Um, they kept suggesting mental illness over and over. I kept being like, it's not mental illness. I'm perfectly fine. There's something wrong with my body. Like, you need to check out my heart. And they did, you know, all of the heart scans and heart enzyme whatever's. 
And they were like, listen, you've been here for 12 hours. We've done everything to check your heart other than fucking open heart surgery. You are physically fine. You definitely have a mental illness and we need to get you, you know, in somewhere to get diagnosed. There's a however month long wait list. Um, and I thought they were wrong to such a degree that I then signed myself out against doctor's orders. I thought they were so wrong. Um, and then I went back to my hometown because I had three days of school and then four days off. I did three days on, four days off for a year. So my next four days off, I was just, you know, racking my brain with my now partner. Like, what could this be? What is happening to me? And this was around November of that year. And for the next month, I did nothing about my mental health problems. Um, I was hospitalized one more time for either dehydration or panic attack. It's hard to tell (laughs) when that's happening. And then December of that year, so a month after these panic attacks started happening, and to put it, these panic attacks were basically my body and brain being like, we can't do this anymore. Our tics need to come out. And I wasn't letting them. And I thought everybody was holding back, you know, being twitchy. I thought it was hard for everyone to sit still. I just thought I had a hard time sitting still. Um, And I didn't realize it had anything to do with my panic attacks. But my body was under so much stress from holding all of this in for 18 years. Well, I guess like 12 years. That it was coming out in really dangerous ways with my panic attacks. And then so a month later, after my um, second hospitalization... My now partner got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is the same diabetes my little brother had. And that December, I was supposed to go to Las Vegas with my extended family. Um, And like four days before the trip, I had another episode of extreme dehydration. My boyfriend was hospitalized uh, for the foreseeable future. He was 94 pounds. Um, they were worried about his heart failing because of how little, you know, everything his body had from the undiagnosed diabetes that they were now treating. Um, so I had an insane amount of shit going on. And on top of that, I had a falling out with my best friend over how much I was going back and forth to my hometown because they didn't know what was going on. Um, So they thought I was just being clingy with a guy, which wasn't the case, obviously. Um, So four days before the Las Vegas trip, I, in the middle of a panic attack, had to call and tell my mom that I couldn't go and I would die if I was on that plane. And I fully believed that. I fully thought that if I got on that plane, I was going to die. And that was definitely a, a paranoid delusion. And I've had paranoid delusions, you know, throughout my life about a lot of different things. A current one that's been affecting me really bad lately is about owls, which sounds insane. Um, My longest standing paranoid delusion is about mirrors. I cannot look directly into a mirror for 
too long and like focus on the fact that I'm looking in a mirror or I will start like hyperventilating and freaking out and I have to turn all the mirrors away from me when I'm trying to go to bed shit like that um so I had a paranoid delusion about getting on the plane being my death and I refused to come on the trip and that was definitely good I would not have done well over there I was at the lowest point in my mental illness because I still was not, uh, I still had not even admitted that it was mental. I fully thought there was something physical going on and I was going to die because no one would treat me because everyone was telling me it was mental illness. That's why I thought I would die on the plane. But that was not the case. It was mental illness. Um, And then three weeks later, when my boyfriend was discharged and we were home, I finally, like, looked at myself and looked at the people around me and realized there is something very wrong with me. I don't understand what's happening. So then I had a breakdown. I had a psychotic break, which is really hard to describe. A lot of baths with my clothes on is the best way to describe it. And then I finally had to start seeking help because of that, because no one can deal with that, you know, other than a professional. So my boyfriend took me to the, like, drop-off psych place, and then I had my first sit-down with a psych nurse. Um, I have beef with psych nurses, as do, you know, all people with major mental illnesses, But, you know, they're just doing their job. Um, They're just doing their job. My first sit down with a psych nurse was so stressful for me that, you know, a lot of ticks were coming out that she was noticing. She definitely wrote a bunch of them down in her notes, asked me if that happens a lot. And I was like, yeah, I'm just fidgety. I have a hard time sitting still. And she was like, they look a lot like ticks. And I didn't even know what she was talking about. Um, I had no idea what that meant. Uh, she explained to me what those were and I was like, yeah, that I just can't sit still. And she went, no, that repetitiveness of the same motion and you can't control it. That's not, not being able to sit still. That's a symptom. And I was very taken aback by that. Ice coffee sip. A little ice ASMR. So she uh, sent me to a, you know, walk-in clinic with her notes um, because she couldn't, you know, prescribe me anything. So she sent me off to a walk-in clinic with her notes. And that's when we talked about in the last episode that weird racial experience I had with a doctor that was this. I came in with her notes and I was like, she thinks that I definitely have major depressive uh, disorder and clinical, you know, depression and anxiety. Um, But she thinks there's something else going on there too. And that's when this doctor was like, maybe we should hold off on medicating just to make sure it's not intergenerational trauma which is insane. This is not trauma left over from being Jewish and being scared of genocide. This is clearly a mental illness. Um, And I made my boyfriend come with me to that appointment. 
And it's a good fucking thing he did because my male boyfriend talked to this male doctor. I was saying over and over to this man, it, this has nothing to do with my being Jewish. That is insane. And then finally my boyfriend was like, she is definitely mentally ill. This is not, you are wrong. He listened to him. So I was prescribed a Skedilopran. I believe that's how it's pronounced. And let's talk about my experience with a Skedilopran. So medications like this, uh, antidepressants, they take about two weeks to start even working. And at this point, I was still masking tics um, to a high degree, not as much as I was beforehand. But I was still masking them. I still had no diagnosis, so I didn't really know what was going on yet. I didn't really know to stop masking. But now I knew what tics were. So subconsciously, that did make me mask a little less, I guess. Um, but yeah, so a Skedilopran I did not like. A week in, I was, I locked myself in a BC Fairies bathroom and hid under the sink, scream crying. Um not good. It was also the 5 a.m. boat, so I was way too, it was way too early for me to be putting people through that. <laughs> Just fucking woke up and there's some girl screaming under a sink, like, what the hell, bitch, get out. So I did not like a Skedilopran, and they switched it. I don't remember what they switched it to, <laughs> but it wasn't as bad as the Skedilopran, but it still was not good enough. So three weeks, um, sorry, three months into being on an antidepressant, which was the only thing they could really give me because I had no diagnosis, I was finally with a uh, psychiatrist um, who, within 20 minutes, diagnosed me with Tourette's syndrome and said, you know, the typical Tourette's syndrome thing, uh, diagnosis of Tourette's syndrome with comorbid uh, mental illnesses. And I was like, what the fuck are they? What are the comorbid illnesses so I can, you know, properly handle that? And he went, you know, it's a mixture of a lot of things. You have tendency, you have mostly tendencies of bipolar disorder, but you also have tendencies of uh, OCD. You have a lot of tendencies of ADHD. Um, but I would say mainly bipolar disorder. There's a lot of stuff in there. You definitely have a, a panic disorder. So there was a lot of comorbid stuff happening and he couldn't actually diagnose any of them because I didn't have the full list of symptoms required to diagnose any of them. I had some of them. And that's the thing about comorbid disorders. You don't have the entire mental illness a lot of the time. So my comorbid disorders were really hard because none of them were full, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, I mean, when pe when I have to describe my comorbid, you know, situation, I just say, you know, uh, symptoms of bipolar disorder with uh, panic attacks. That, you know, best describes what I go through. So that's what I do. Um, he put me then on... Uh, one more antidepressant. He put me on Wellbutrin, which I'm still on now. I do like Wellbutrin. 
And he also put me on an antipsychotic that started with an R. And I was like, why are you putting me on an antipsychotic? I don't think I'm having psychosis. And he said, well, there's been some studies um, where some people with Tourette's ha- can lessen their tics on an antipsychotic. And I was like, oh, chill. And then he explained to me what I've been explaining about tics the whole time and masking. And he explained to me, you know, your heart rate is incredibly high. Um, all these reports from the ER I'm, handi- I'm holding here. You're going to cause serious damage to your body physically if you keep masking all these tics. So it became like a, an insane problem, my masking. And now that I knew that I was masking, um, I had to learn how to unmask, which was hard because I'd accidentally been doing it my whole life very successfully. So that's when I started having to learn how to just have tics and let them be there. So yeah, he prescribed me an antipsychotic and I was like, okay, I guess we'll try it out. Absolutely hated it. It, that thing happened that we talked about at the beginning with the cognitive dulling, which made when he took me off of it because of the cognitive dulling really hard. Um, so I'm not an antipsychotic anymore. Um, what I'm on right now is Wellibutrin and um, Venlafaxine. And those two things are working for me at the moment. They do have to change because of the many comorbid things happening. They are changed more frequently than, you know, a lot of people. And as far as tics causing physical pain, like headaches, muscle strain, or soreness, absolutely. All of the above. My spine hurts a lot. I have one tick where I bend really far back and like almost fall. Not good. My spine definitely hurts from it. I've had a, a teeth grinding tick since I can remember. That was probably actually one of my first ticks after the neck thing. And interesting, they my dentist was my grandfather. He noticed my teeth grinding when I came into the dentist, you know, the marks that it leaves on your teeth. And so he gave me a night guard, but I came back, you know, a year or whatever later, same exact thing. So he had to come to the conclusion that I wasn't grinding at night. I was grinding during the day. And, you know, there's a huge stigma around mental illness. And it just seemed like, oh, it's a kid thing. You know, kids get nervous. So that didn't really go anywhere. I just stopped using the night guard and nothing was really done about the daytime grinding. There's not much that you can do about that unless you are like way overly careful about mental illness, which I definitely will be because of my experiences. But most parents wouldn't go, oh, you're grinding your teeth during the day. Let's take you to the psych ward. So that didn't go anywhere. But um, anyways, yeah, that causes headaches a lot. Lots of muscle strain, lots of soreness, all of that. All of that's definitely super prominent in my case. Um, so this pre-monetary urge is a feeling similar to what you feel when you need to sneeze or you have an insect bite that itches. 
So this is a really important part. Anybody zoning out, this is the part to tune in. My tics feel like when you have to sneeze or have an insect bite that itches. So imagine you have to sneeze for 12 years. That's what holding my tics in was. Imagine you have insect bites on your neck, a couple places on your arms, um, you know, spread pretty evenly throughout your body, and you don't scratch them, and they're there for 12 years. That is what suppressing my tics was. So that's, that's the best way that I can put it, really. And I think you can see how that would drive a person crazy and cause a lot of problems. Let's take a sip of iced coffee. So let's talk about my ability to even suppress these. The ability to suppress tics varies between individuals. Tic suppression can take a lot of energy, making it hard to concentrate on tasks. The effort required to suppress tics can be exhausting. Most people who try to suppress their tics report the tic will eventually be released anyways. So in my case, absolutely true. Um, it took energy all day at school when I was a kid, an insane amount of energy, um, not ticking, not even realizing I was suppressing them, but I was. Um, and then I would get home and, you know, they would all come out in the form of anxiety attacks in my bedroom. So that's how that went for me. That's how I was able to suppress them. Um, men are three times, three to four times more likely than women to have Tourette syndrome. So there you go again, another reason it was almost impossible to diagnose me. In general, people with Tourette syndrome have a heightened response to their environment that may cause them to become overwhelmed. This is similar to an autistics, uh, an, an autistics person um, responding to their environment. So I guess you would call that another comorbid dis symptom, but it's kind of a symptom of its own. Uh, it can escalate to fight or flight reactions or freeze in my case. If it happens, it's important that the person be placed with people who can remain calm in these situations and provide necessary supports. So if you have a person with Tourette's in your life, um, just know that when you go from one space to another, like inside to outside, um, we have a heightened response to that happening, just like a person with autism would. And it's really hard for us. It's the sensory overload of just moving locations can be a lot sometimes. And that's why anybody who knows me knows I don't really leave my apartment. Um, I have a particularly bad case of um, of the sensory issues. So I don't leave my apartment very much. I used to when I didn't know what was going on. Um, but I, I tried to stay inside my like whole childhood. I'd rather be inside, you know, and that's probably how I got to be an artist. Honestly, you know, all the kids were outside and I really didn't want to go. I was already inside and, <laughs> I couldn't, I just said I didn't want to go outside. I didn't feel like playing outside. There was no way for me with my child words to explain 
I don't want to go outside because it's scary. <laughs> but yeah, anybody who knows me knows I don't really leave my apartment very much. And that's exactly why. And then a lot of the time when I say that, people go, oh, that's so sad. You know, that sucks. And to that, I say, no, it's not. I am more than happy being inside. Being in my apartment where I feel safe and I don't have sensory overload and I can control my environment makes me happy. The way that I choose to live my life inside makes me happy. There's no reason to feel sad about me choosing to stay inside. Everything that helps me with my symptoms is here. You know, when I'm out in public, one of the scariest things about my sensory overload is that, you know, what if I need something and it's not here, you know? Sometimes I need to dive into a pile of stuffed animals and feel how soft everything is to calm down my senses, you know? What if I need that and I'm outside and I can't have it? I just feel a general sense of security being where I can control my environment, and that's not sad. I love it here. There's no reason to be sad about that. Um, so yeah, a person with Tourette's may become overly stimulated by minimal sensory input, like noise, bright lights, certain fabrics, particular tastes or smells. Additionally, a person may exhibit a need for ex excessive, excessive sensory input, resulting in chewing, hitting, or hurting themselves in some manner when put in these environments that they find hard to navigate. So that's absolutely true. Um, the reason my nails are all bitten up right now is because I went to a cabin with the four friends in my circle and I was on the Malahat Highway, the scariest highway <laughs> that I ever have to, I don't, I, I personally can't drive. That's another thing that I guess we'll talk about later. I cannot drive because of this, but you know, being driven even on that highway, I rip all my nails off every time, rip all my nails off. So <laughs> the nail biting it can definitely be triggered by this overstimulation from minimal sensory. Just being on the highway with all these trees passing by super fast, with this cliff on one side, with other cars, you know, coming up the other direction towards us, I start ripping my nails off. I just do. And you can try and stop me, but all that will do is cause a panic attack from suppressing it. So it's better to just let me do it, honestly. Um... And that's fine, you know? It heals in a few days. It's not that bad. Um, a person with Tourette's may have anxiety surrounding specific tasks or situations. The person may be unable to articulate the reasons for his or her anxiety or may be embarrassed to do so. So I mean talking about why my kitchen has to be clean but my bedroom doesn't. I couldn't explain it. Refusing to attempt tasks at all may indicate some underlying anxiety is preventing the person from being successful in said task. So, like, this, the best way I explain this is I don't feel like I have free will. And I know a lot of people feel like that, but I feel it to agree a degree where, like, I truly don't feel like I choose what I get up and do each day. Because if my brain goes, no, do that task. You know, do that task today. 
I, I cannot make myself do it. I absolutely cannot. I don't know what it is. I've always been like this. Um, it definitely resulted in my stubbornness developing. I'm very stubborn, as everybody who knows me knows. Um, and I had to be good at coming up with reasons to not do these tasks or, you know, go to these situations. So I became really good at, you know, debating because I had to, to stay out of these situations. You know, come on, the whole family is going to baseball. Come along. And my ass really wants to stay inside and stay at home. So I get really good at, you know, coming up with reasons to stay home. Um, you know, I have too much homework to do was a really good one that I used a lot. Obviously, I can't use that anymore. Now I live in my own place and I don't need to do that anymore. And I have a diagnosis, so I don't need to do that anymore. I go, I can't do that right now. <laughs> and I don't do it. Strategies to help reduce anxiety need to be very specific and supported by everybody. So consistency is critical because it creates a sense of security. That's a huge reason I stay in my apartment. And that's a huge reason that I'm so lucky to have my partner because he is constantly creating a sense of security for me. And he has, you know, his diagnoses of physical problems. He has two diagnosed um, physical ailments. And I have my diagnosed mental ailments. And we help each other with those things. And it's a great thing that we can do for each other. We can't cure each other's illnesses, but we can help each other. And I have that consistency and sense of security in my life. And that is a huge huge part of why I haven't had a panic attack in a long time. I feel secure where I am. Um, I'm not asked to leave where I am very often. I've created this place where I can be and just be this place where I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do or can't do is a better way to describe it. Um, 81% of people with Tourette's syndrome have comorbid conditions that we talked about. Um, one of them that I haven't talked about yet because I wanted to talk about it here is what the sensory issues are called. So that is sensory processing disorder and SPD is one um, that I particularly had diagnosed separately from my Tourette's because I did have every single um, symptom of it. So it is a comorbid disorder of my Tourette's, but it's so severe that it is diagnosed separately as SPD. So I have a sensory uh, processing disorder. And another thing that I have from the Tourette's is dysgraphia and dyslexia. So that's... Um, you know, trouble reading numbers and letters. I have such a bad case of uh, dysgraphia and dyslexia that I can't tell my left and right. I have it tattooed on my hands. Um, and <laughs> this was another one that's like, oh, she's seven. She still doesn't know her left and rights. You know, she's a little slow on it. It's not a big deal. But then I was 12 and I didn't know my left and rights. Um, and the worst was put your fingers up 
and see which L that one, which L is right. You know, the L that looks like it's written correctly is your left side. And it was like, I can't tell. (laughs) When I put my fingers up like that, they both look like L's to me. I can't tell which one is facing the right way. That's a useless thing. So I have left and right tattooed on my hands now. And I use it every single day. Tourette syndrome doesn't affect the intelligence of a person. In fact, most children with Tourette syndrome have um, normal to high intelligence levels. There's a lot of similarities between the comorbid symptoms of Tourette's and patients with high-functioning autism. And my sensory processing disorder and dysgraphia and dyslexia are, you know, one of those things. So I have a list of all my tics here. Um, Coughing, throat... Let's take a sip of iced tea first. Uh, Fucking iced coffee first. God damn it. Sorry, that was a gross noise. Um, Coughing, throat clearing, eye blinking, head jerking, mouth movements, uh, nose twitching, uh, bruxism, which is teeth grinding, banging and tapping, head shaking, neck jerking, fussing with my hair is a big one. One of the ones that happens most when I try to drive. Um, pressing on my veins. Sometimes I feel like my, oh, just saying it makes me need to do it. I feel like my veins are, I don't know, doing, like, I can't look at my veins. I have to press them back in or I can, like, feel all of them. Like, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have even gotten into that. I'll try and move past that. Nail biting. Food has to be in certain ratios. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) It seems so normal to me. I don't even talk about it. That's one of my obsessive-compulsive symptoms that I got is food ratios. If my food doesn't have the perfect amount of ratios, um, I go crazy. I can't eat that meal, and (laughs) it's not great. I need to have a bite of everything in... I need to have some of everything in each bite. Um, and I need to have more than one taste in a meal. Like if I'm eating spaghetti, I can't just eat spaghetti. There needs to be another taste. So I'll like get a banana out. And that seemed weird my whole childhood too. Um, and another thing with food, I have a bunch of food ones, I guess I forgot to talk about, is I never eat the last bite of something. There's always one bite left on my plate. The last bite of food my brain just goes, no eat, no eat it, you don't. No idea why, has nothing to do do with germs, nothing to do with a compulsion. I don't know what it is. Um, I press on my collarbones as another tick. I feel like they're uneven and I'll press on them to try and get them to be even. I'll push my esophagus back and forth with my hand, like holding it. So yeah, those are my ticks. Um, yeah. The therapy that's supposedly supposed to help them is called Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks, aka uh, CBIT, CBIT. And it absolutely makes mine worse. Um, I fucking hate CBIT. I will never do it again. They've tried to put me into CBIT like four times. I fucking hate it. They do this. Oh. The first thing they do is always meditation. And 
The thing about meditation is it makes my tics really bad. Um, sitting there thinking about nothing makes all of my tics happen because it's there's nothing to take my brain off of them. And I know that meditation works for some people with Tourette's, but it makes it so much worse for me. And I explain this every time they try to do C-bit with me and they never listen. And it's always the first thing they try to do is the meditation. The next thing they try to do is the focus on your breathing, you know? Think breath in, breath out. And that one makes me worse too. That one makes my esophagus and collarbone tics really bad. Um, and those ones send me into panic attacks. They don't really happen to me much anymore. They haven't happened in at least six months. Um, from my bipolar, uh, comorbid bipolar symptoms, I did have a two-month-long uh, manic episode um, in the summer. I didn't have the collarbone or esophagus pushing ticks during a manic episode. During a depressive episode is more likely when that'll happen. And I had a really bad, I would say, maybe month and a half long depressive episode after the manic, after the mania. A lot of baths with my clothes on. Um, so helping head shaking or neck jerking, neck jerking, they recommend heat therapy products um, like wheat germ pillows and heat pads, which I use. They don't really do much for me. Hot water bottles or towel applied to the painful area. I mean, they help as much as they can. Um, iced coffee break. You know, they, they do what they can. They, they aren't a fix. Tourette's isn't really researched, you know? They don't even know fully what causes it. There's obviously genetic components, but they don't even know if, if it's if there's any nurture in it because there's definitely a nature component, you know? They have no idea if you're born with the nature component um, and then a nurture component triggers it. They don't know. So the research is super limited and it makes it really hard to treat it. And nobody really wants to um, research it because it's, uh, I don't know, not a sexy topic in science right now. And it's also, you know, we're not dying people with Tourette's, you know, the depressive episodes and whatnot can lead to suicide, but they research into depression and that helps us with that end of it. So they don't really, they don't research Tourette's and comorbid disorders of Tourette's really. They research the comorbid disorders individually for people who have diagnosis of that fully, which doesn't always help us very much, um, but sometimes it does. Like research into sensory processing disorder, my SPD, that research has helped me. I've found some coping mechanisms from that research, but at the end of the day, research into Tourette's and its comorbid disorders would be very helpful. That would be super cool. Um, anyways, I guess this has been long enough, but I, uh, nearing the end of the episode, so I'm going to pick a question from my website to answer. So we're going to end each episode off now with a question because you guys are now sending questions into the podcast. Link in the bio if you want to maybe be chosen for next week's question that I answer. 
Um, today's question, I'm going to use a fake name for all of these, obviously. Let's call this girl Angela. Um, Angela wrote in and asked, I want to help, but I have extreme clinical anxiety. And after watching videos about serious topics such as sexual assault and violence, it often triggers nightmares and worsens anxiety. What can I do to help without learning all the details or should I just watch anyways and deal with it? And that's a great question. And definitely, um, I picked this one because it's so on topic with today's um, episode. So for this, um, the end part, should I just deal with it anyways? I will always say no. I will always say no to that. You, um, your safety and your mental health are one and the same. When your mental health is compromised, so is your safety. And the most important thing to me is that you guys are safe. That's the most important thing that I will ever try to get across to you guys is that I want you guys to, to be doing everything you can to be safe. So just dealing with it anyways, it's not safe. And I want you to protect yourself above all else. So as far as having clinical anxiety and wanting to talk about serious subjects like sexual assault and violence, but not feeling able to. Um, I would suggest, this is a hard one because I had to figure out my own way to do this as well. I would, on really good days, when I'm having a really good day, um, find some topics about it that weren't so triggering that it ruined my day. It basically becomes a tightrope walk. It becomes a fine line of finding things that are serious and you want to talk about, um, but not so personal to you that it's hard to talk about. Like me personally, I would never be able to ever, I'll never be able to talk about um, sexual assault being a problem in the sports industry, uh, uh, particularly rugby or football. I'll never be able to talk about that or research that because of how close to home it hits. So I don't research stories on that, on football players or rugby players committing those acts of sexual abuse. I truly can't. So you basically just have to find topics that you know that you can handle is it. And if you can't find any topics about sexual assault that you can handle, um, what I would suggest doing is being passionate about another realm of social justice. I know you can't choose your passions, but there is so much work that needs to be done in social justice. And so much that you, Angela, can do. And if sexual assault and violence is something that you can't find um, a way to help with because of your own safety and mental health, then there are so many realms of social justice that want your help. You know, environmental, animal rights, feminism. There, I mean, it, it, the list will go on. You can, you know, you can help in so many ways. Uh, workers' rights, unionizing, those are both super important right now. My petition of the day yesterday was to help Amazon workers unionize. Um, 
you can be an activist whose you know main goal is to get journalists out of jail. That's a super super important um, topic that being loud helps with. You know, um, being a keyboard activist works really really important really well with saving journalists. Being loud about that helps. There's basically I just want to say if you don't feel safe talking about sexual assault, that is perfectly fine if you can't find a way to talk about it. There's so many ways you can help and not being able to talk about one aspect of social justice shouldn't hinder your passion for the topic of social justice. There's so much you can do and I really hope that answer helps. I'm, you know, just a, I'm just a person. I'm not trained in any of this. I'm, you know, I've been yelling about these topics for years um, with no one listening. I've been just screaming at the top of my lungs into a black hole for a long time and now, randomly, a bunch of people are listening. So I'm trying to get used to that. I hope that my screaming into a black hole is creating an answer that helps you, Angela. And I really hope you find an aspect of either sexual assault that you can talk about safely or another aspect of social justice that doesn't trigger you that you can talk about safely. And I know that you being passionate enough to write in and ask me, you know, um, ask me this important question, it shows how passionate you are about helping people and about activism and about making the world a better place to live in. So somebody as passionate as you, you're not going to settle for not helping. You're not. Um, you know, I know you. I was you. I am you. Um, all of us who have this passion inside of us to make the world a better place and we don't feel whole when we're not helping, we always find a way to help. I guess is my final thing. You will find a way to help um, and I want you to be safe. So um, anyways, guys, that is the question of the day segment. Uh, today's podcast ran a little bit long, but I'm glad that I got up the energy to do it. And um, yeah, I love you guys. So I hope you finished your iced coffee over the uh, length of the show. I did not. So I'm going to go finish that and maybe I'll be able to get myself to shower that'll be cool. Um, so yeah, I love you guys. Stay safe. Uh, stay passionate. If you have any questions for me, links in the bio to talk to me, um, send in questions for Sunday's podcast, which I will post this week. So I love you guys. Again, I love you so much. Um, and bye. Yeah. Hello, I am Jewish Jasmine T, and this is Help Me Name This Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about bisexuals. Ooh, taboo. Um, shouldn't be, though. So, yeah, put your buckle on and get ready to talk about a bunch of bisexuals. <laughs>